For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray once again that Christ would be above, below, before, behind, and in each one of us this morning as we open up your word, and in dependence on your spirit, ask you to reveal yourself and your wishes to us. Father, this morning we want to remember those who are hurting, those who are grieving. Uh, Father, we lift up the, the Banks family as they, this past week, had to say goodbye to Jonah's mother. We ask that you would continue to comfort them and remind them of their place in your family and your love for them. Uh, We pray uh, for uh, Brett Barrick as he recovers in the hospital from an injury. ask that you would protect him from complications and that you would relieve his pain. We pray for Travis Moss, who uh, was also admitted to the hospital. I pray that you would give quick answers and speedy healing to him. And for all these folks, I pray that you would draw them close to you in the power of your spirit and in the the name of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for your protection and your, uh, just your blessing over your servants who are returning from a missions trip for Mary Ann and Pastor Guy and for their team as they travel back. I pray that you keep them safe, that you'd um, pave the way for them to get back uh, as planned and to recover quickly. Uh, from that uh, trip, which I'm sure was just wonderful, but also exhausting. Father, we also ask this morning for your continued wisdom. Uh, We can't even count the times when we've asked you for guidance and you've provided it. Sometimes that guidance wasn't what we wanted to hear, but you've given it to us out of your fatherly love. And so, Lord, when it comes to our building plans, when it comes to our desire to fill the role of associate pastor of youth and children, when it comes to our desire to uh, hire a new administrative assistant, we ask for your provision and your wisdom. And we're, we're asking that not because we deserve it, but because you have promised to provide all things to your children. And so it's on that basis that we come before you confidently and Trust that you will provide what you promise. And Father, most of all, we pray that you would work in our hearts this morning as we look at your word. And if there are any here today who are far from you, who don't know 
that they are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, through his blood alone, by your grace alone. Pray that today would be the day they come to you through the power of your spirit. Father, be with us, we, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 1872 was a very important year in the history of the United States. The Reconstruction era was coming to a close. Uh, the first patent was issued by the U.S. Patent Office, kind of a boring detail of U.S. history, but a very important one. Uh, Yellowstone was established as a national park. And on May 10th, Victoria Woodhull became the very first woman ever to be nominated for the office of President of the United States. Now, obviously, most of you know enough of your United States history to know that she didn't win. Even if Woodhull had earned enough electoral votes to take office, she would have lost on a technicality. Her birthday was six months shy. Uh, her 35th birthday was six months shy of the day of her inauguration. But age and gender notwithstanding, there was perhaps another more salacious reason why Victoria Woodhull would never take her place in the White House. She was an early and outspoken advocate of what had come to be known as free love. She felt that anybody ought to be able to get involved romantically with anybody else for as long as they wanted and no longer without any fear of anybody retaliating against them. She confessed publicly, yes, I am a free lover. I have an inalienable constitutional and natural right to love whom I may, to love as long or as short a period as I can, to change that love every day if I please. And with that right, neither you nor any law you can frame have any right to interfere. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Miss Woodhull. She had literally grown up in an abusive marriage and had to overcome great obstacles to escape a tyrannical and adulterous husband who was twice her age on the day of their wedding. But the notions that she championed have, in the 150 years since her presidential campaign, gone to seed and spread roots into nearly every corner of American culture. As I'm sure you well know, free love would eventually lead to a sexual revolution, to the summer of love in 1967, to the licentiousness of modern American life, to the legalization of same-sex marriage, to what Rebecca McLaughlin has called the secular creed. Love is love. I remember seeing that phrase on posters and patches and uh, hanging on cubicle walls in the office building where I worked. Uh, it's become so central to the core beliefs of our generation that in spite of its ideological and its even religious undertones, it's taken center stage in all of the largest for-profit companies in the nation. I mean, it's just the, it's the secular creed. Free love. The question is, what do you mean by free? What do you mean by love? Ironically, it's these twin concepts of freedom and love that dominate this last major section in Paul's letter to the Galatians. But the way that he defines these concepts, I think, is altogether different from the way that we see them defined in the world. In order to be a Christian, in order to live as a Christian, you must stand in freedom. You need to walk in love, but it better be gospel freedom. It needs to be Christian love. So in order to understand all of this, because it is so, it just flies so much in the face of the culture in which we live. In order to understand how justification by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, leads practically to a life of true freedom, I'd like for us to answer four questions that arise out of today's text. Here's question number one. Question number one, how do I live free? How do I live free? Paul says, you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Why does he begin this way? It's very simple, isn't it? We are tempted to use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And if we do that, we really aren't walking in freedom at all. 
You might recall from last week how we sort of walked back through the text of the entire letter of Galatians to understand what Paul means when he speaks of freedom. He doesn't mean volitional freedom or political freedom or the freedom to do whatever you want. He's very clear that there are essentially three things from which we have been set free and three things that we have been set free to. Uh, first, we're set free from the sentence of death. Uh, do you remember uh, that from reading this book? We're like the death row inmate who, uh, whose cell door opens and who walks out into the open air and leaves the prison whose sentence of death has been removed. We are free from the sentence of death. Secondly, we're free from the satanic powers. Uh, Satan used to have power over us because he would accuse us of sin and wickedness and injustice, and those accusations stuck to us. We were guilty as charged, but Christ in his grace set us free from the present evil age, free from the elemental spirits, free from living in slavery to those who are not actually gods. We are free from the satanic powers. Thirdly, Christ set us free from the sinful passions because the presence of the Spirit in the life of the believer, we don't have to sin. We don't have to say yes to the sinful passions. We can say no to gluttony or to drunkenness or to sexual perversion or to anger or to strife and fighting or to hypocrisy. We can live lives that please the Father because the Spirit is indwelling us and we're set free from the sinful passions. So we're set free from the sentence of death Free from the satanic powers, free from the sinful passions, what are we free to? Well, according to chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, we're free to exercise and to embrace three foundational Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. So think about this. We're free because of the work of the Spirit. We are free to believe and to be justified by the blood of Christ through that faith. Faith is that settled trust in God and in the promises that he's made. It's the belief that he's going to do in my life what he promised to do. And when we have that faith, what does that lead to? It gives us hope. Not I hope so, but I confidently expect that one day I'm going to be ultimately and finally joined to Christ forever in the new creation. So I have not only faith... But I have hope, and when I have that faith, and that fuels my hope, both of those things kind of work together, and, 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 and I have that security, and I have that confidence, and I'm unshaken in my relationship with God, that's naturally going to lead to a third virtue, and it's this virtue that we want to expound on and expand on today, the, the freedom to love. I mean, think about it. If you know that God welcomes you into his family, if you know that you have a loving Heavenly Father whose love is never going to give up or stop, if you know that your eternal future is incomparably better than the present in which you are living, that frees you up. Now I can love. I can love others because I am loved by God. Now here's where we need to be really clear. Uh, because love, like that concept of freedom that we had to spend so much time defining last week, is one of those ideas that can be really slippery. Like, we can define it in all these different ways, and, and I want to make sure we're defining it biblically. So uh, we need to get a, a little bit philosophical for a moment. So everybody take out your thinking cap and put on your thinking cap and stay with me. When we talk about love in everyday life, there's at least some sense in which we, in, in which we mean to refer to a desire of the heart for the good of something or someone that the heart finds good or worthwhile or beautiful. I'll repeat that one time. Love, when we talk about love, we're talking about a desire of the heart for the good of something or someone that, that we find good or worthwhile or beautiful. Uh, where it gets tricky is when we ask, okay, well, what's good? So I'll give you an example really quick. Uh, it's just basic. I love my wife. Here's what that means. It means that I want what's best for her. I want the good for her because I find her good and beautiful and worthwhile. So I want what's best for her. But the question is, well, what does that mean, good? What do you mean by that? If, like many people, you don't believe that God created the universe, then you have to conclude that there is nothing good in and of itself. There is nothing beautiful or worthwhile in and of itself. Whatever exists is simply a thing that exists. 
It was not created, and therefore it has no intrinsic design, and therefore it has no intrinsic beauty. Beauty and goodness and meaning, they're all constructed in the minds of sentient beings. Uh, if you're in the Strange New World class, some of this should sound familiar. Uh, since that's the case, it's up to the individual mind of an individual person to determine what they think is good or beautiful or worth loving. Uh, to take it a little further, think about this, folks. Since goodness is not a thing in itself, it's a thing we define and construct in our minds. Since that's the case, then what, is it, what does it mean for me to love another person? To, 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 to desire the good of another person means that I desire what they believe is good. And so if I really love them, I desire what they perceive as good, since that's really the only kind for them of good there is. If I try to take my idea of good and impose it on them, I'm not really loving them. I'm violently oppressing them. I am actually hating them because... True love recognizes that they have the right to determine their own idea of what is good. And this is why we've come to a place in our society where a, a phrase like love is love has become this new orthodoxy. Uh, because if you really love me, then you'll affirm in an unqualified way everything that I believe is good, every perception of beauty and goodness that I have, you will desire that that goodness so defined comes to place, it comes to pass in my life in abundance. If you really love me, that's what you want for me. So, for example, if I believe it is good and beautiful to pursue a romantic relationship with a person of the same gender, and you really love me, and you desire my good, then you'll desire that that relationship thrives, and you'll celebrate with me when it does, if you really love me. Or if I believe it's good that I'll experience joy and healing to craft an identity that contradicts my biological sex, if you actually love me, you will celebrate the ways in which I successfully project that identity and you're, you're, you're going to go along with it. Now, folks, what many Christians don't recognize and understand is just how compelling, how powerful this approach to goodness and beauty and love is to our neighbors who believe that God is either uninvolved or uninterested in our existence. If it's true that God is out of the picture, it makes total sense to think of goodness and beauty and love in this way. But we understand from God's word and from the things that he's made and from the light of our own conscience that God is very much in the picture. And so we understand that we were created in his image for his glory, that goodness and beauty and meaning and worthiness are, yes, defined in the eye of the beholder, but one specific beholder, the ultimate beholder, who saw the existence of all things in his own imagination before he spoke them into existence. And so, for a Christian, love involves two movements of the heart. First, we recognize the goodness, the value the worthwhileness of a human being. Why? Because all human beings bear the image of God, right? So that's movement number one. And then the second movement of the heart is we desire the good of that human being as God defines what good is. That's particularly true in the case of other believers in our local church. This is what Paul is talking about. You see, in the church family, we see the goodness and the beauty and the meaning and the worthwhileness of the people in our church family who are being made not only in the image of God, but actually being conformed to the image of Christ, God's love has made them lovely, and we love them. We want what's good for them, and we're in community with them and have the opportunity to actually bring that about. And because we've been set free from death... And sin and Satan, because we have this new identity as sons instead of slaves, then we are actually freed up to desire the greatest good for our brothers and sisters in Christ, to truly love them. And if you love someone, you're going to serve them. This is what he's talking about here in the opening verses of our passage. Now think just how ironic that is. Freedom always, it sets us free, but then it 
creates a, a, a relationship of service to somebody else. We think freedom is, I'm free to serve me. No, that's not freedom. Freedom is, now you're free to serve others. This is the kind of freedom God expects us to walk in. This is the kind of freedom he wants us to walk in. We may want to be free in order to serve our flesh, but Paul says true freedom enables you to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that's the answer to our first question. What, how do I live free? I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I serve them. But before we move on to the second question, let's just pause for a second for some application. It may be the case, reading between the lines here in Galatians 5 and 6, if you read all of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6, that the legalism that was infecting the hearts of the Galatian believers had actually led to a competitive, divisive, suspicious spirit within the churches. And by the way, it is always that way. When legalism is infecting the church, it is always going to produce a divisive, competitive spirit in the church. Show me a legalistic church, and I will show you a church where everybody hates each other, right? Uh, backbiting, rivalry, they are everywhere. Because if you are living your life by the works of the law, you're not going to be able to really love others because you're not really free. You are shackled. And so every single move that you make is designed in some way to get you ahead in life. Every compliment is going to be backhanded or selfishly motivated or designed to manipulate. Every decision is going to be a chance for someone to gain power over somebody else. Every slight, whether it is intentional or not, is going to be, it's going to be a deep cut, a deep wound. It's going to feel like the stab of a bayonet because I, I'm so fragile because I'm really not free. So if you keep hanging on to this gospel of Jesus plus, then you're going to make a lot of enemies. You're not going to be able to walk in the freedom to love. You're going to be backbiting. You're going to be fighting. You're going to be trying to gain the upper hand. And so, once again, a motivation for us to say no to this Jesus plus gospel, right? But I want to take it just a step further and note what is just assumed in this whole discussion, but frankly, is, is missing in the lives of many professing Christians in our culture today. See, the assumption here is that the Galatian Christians, as confused as they may have been by the legalism and the, the false gospel being put out there by these false brothers, were actually living in community with one another. There were people in each other's lives to love and to serve. There were people in each other's lives who actually made themselves vulnerable, folks, to the kind of pain that Paul describes here in these verses. Backbiting and, and hatred and things, they take place only when there are other people around, right? What I mean is if you don't have this one another relationship with other believers, then it is frankly impossible for you to live that, the way that Christ clearly expects you to live. Christ clearly and repeatedly commands us to and he empowers us and he frees us to love one another, to serve one another. And if we don't have any one another's, we can't do that. What I'm saying is that there are some things that Christ commands us to do that are simply not possible apart from belonging to a local body of believers, a local church. So practically, in everyday life, how do I live free? I have to love others. I have to serve others. That's what we're set free to do. That's our first question. Now, I, I recognize that may not be surprising to you if you're familiar with the teachings of the Bible that I would say that you should love other people. So the first question to our, our first answer to our first question is really not surprising, but there's, there's sort of a loose end that Paul's going to tie up for us in this passage as well because if you're telling me, okay, to live like a Christian, to live free, means to love one another then this, this nagging question in the back of my mind is, okay, but what about the law? I know you've said that by the, by the works of the law, no flesh is going to be justified, and that circumcision doesn't mean anything, and, you know, but does that really mean that I'm supposed to take the law, God's law, and set it over to the side? Many of you have actually brought this question up to me over the last few months because we have this latent legalistic way of thinking in our minds and we love to know that we've been set free from that and, and yet it, it remains because we're, we're saying, am I really supposed to do away with the law? So that's our question. What about the law? Well, folks, keep in mind 
that the law, yes, is the old covenant. It's the commands given on Mount Sinai to Moses and through Moses to the people of God. It is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in his work. But beside all that, the law is actually a reflection of the moral character of God. And so we certainly, it shows us the righteousness and the goodness of God. So we don't want to contradict the law with the way that we live. And what do we do? So, so do, do we, given that that's the case, do we keep the law but only a few of the commands? And then we can kind of have a freebie on the rest? Like, do we keep the law but we try really hard to avoid relying on the law? Do we say you don't have to keep the law but if you want to be a super Christian, you have to keep the law? Like, what do we do with the law? And Paul's answer is surprisingly simple. He says, actually, to love is to fulfill the law. That is the faith that leads to hope, that leads to love. The more you lean into that, the more you're going to do what the law requires. After all, the whole law boils down to, this, to, to, to the idea of love, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. That's what Jesus said. And so when the covenantal obligations of the law are rendered obsolete through Christ's sacrifice and his active obedience, what's left is God's moral nature, God's goodness, God, all that can be summed up in who God is and, and some of those things that we find in the law. And Paul says it can all boil down to this one statement. Love your neighbor. So love is the fulfillment of the law. Isn't this what God promised in the new covenant? Isn't this what God promised in the passage that Andrew read earlier in the service? That the spirit of God would actually write the law of God on our hearts? If you truly, think about this, if you truly understood in any circumstance what it means to love your neighbor, you would not need a law. Like if you perfectly knew what does it look like to love my neighbor in this circumstance? You would not need any other commands except love your neighbor. Because if we're really doing that perfectly, if we're doing that in a Christ-like way, then that would sum up, that would fulfill all the commands of the law. So in the next chapter, now of course, we don't do that perfectly yet. One day we will. But that's the summation of the law. And in the next chapter, Paul's going to speak of the law of Christ. James speaks of the law of liberty. This is what they mean. It is, it's not a new law, a new list of 500 some odd commands. It's a law of a heart that's changed and transformed by the grace of the gospel into a heart that truly loves after God's heart. It's a heart upon which the law of God's love has already been written and is being written. So what about the law? Well, you're no longer under the law in the sense that the law has already been obeyed by Christ, that the curse of the law has already fallen on Christ on the cross. But in another sense, the law of God is written on your heart, and the outward expression of this is love. How do I live free? I, I serve others in love. What about the law? Actually, to love is to fulfill the law. So what I'm saying, folks, is it's actually very simple. The new commandment that Jesus gives is that we love one another. But here's the problem. When we take that simple concept and we go out and we try to live it, it's not always easy, is it? I mean, it's a simple idea that, that God changes my heart. When I, when I believe, I get this new hope, and that hope fuels my love for other people, and that's all I need to know. I, I just love others and I'll fulfill everything that God desires for me from the law, then why, here's question number three, if that's the case, if that's all there is to it, then why is this so hard? Why is this so hard? Why is it that the Christian life involves struggle? Why is faith a fight? So let's drill down a little bit, verses 16 and following. In these verses... Paul explains that there are some internal dynamics at play whenever you make a decision as a Christian. Uh, if, you're gonna, if you're going to love your neighbor, that is only truly possible if you do so in reliance on the Spirit of God. Meanwhile, there's this other principle at work in your inner man, something that Paul calls the flesh. So there's this dynamic inside the heart of the believer, this tension, this opposition between what the Spirit says to do 
and what your flesh is telling you to do. You see, the Galatians had received the Spirit of God when they believed the gospel, and that is true for every believer. Uh, Jesus told Nicodemus this in John chapter 3. The Spirit of God actually takes up residence in the heart of every single believer, and we're born again. It's like we become a temple of the living God himself. And it's the Spirit who helps us understand God's Word. It's the Spirit who reminds us of the teachings of Jesus. It's the Spirit who convicts us of sin, who fuels our faith and our hope in Christ. It's the Spirit, remember, who tells us that we belong to the family of God and reminds us who we are in Christ. But that doesn't mean that the flesh is completely gone. You say, what's the flesh? Uh, flesh is one of those words in the writings of Paul that can mean a lot of different things depending on the context. Uh, sometimes when Paul uses this word, uh, he's talking about our physical bodies. Sometimes when he uses this word, he's talking about our weakness in comparison with God or human ideas in comparison with God's wisdom. Uh, here in this section, though, and, and in several other places in Galatians and in Romans, Paul's using the word flesh in a very specific way. He's talking about the tendency in us to go back to the old way of life, the way of life that we were living before we met Christ. The flesh is always pulling us back to before we met Jesus. Uh, the Spirit reminds us. So here's the Spirit. He's reminding us, you're citizens of heaven. You don't belong in this place. You're pilgrims and sojourners here on this earth. That's what the Spirit reminds us of. The flesh pulls us back and says, no, 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 you're living here on earth. The Spirit reminds us that our eternal future is more important than our fleeting present, but the flesh tries to get us to focus on the pleasures of this life. Like, don't worry about that. That's in the future. The Spirit tells us to pursue Christ no matter what. The flesh tells us to turn around and go back to serving our desires. Picture it like this, and I'm getting this illustration from an early Baptist pastor named John Bunyan. Imagine that your heart is like a city uh, that owes its allegiance to the king of the realm. But for years, the mayor and the aldermen and the city council, whoever, the, the city government, they've been living and leading that city in rebellion against the king for years. And so one day the king comes to the city and he surrounds the walls of the city and he says, it's time for you guys to submit to me. And he's merciful and he offers the king's pardon. And, and the citizens, they hear the offer of forgiveness and the, the, the king wins them over. And the city, citizens of the city, they say, we want that. We want to be in submission to our king. And so what do they do? They depose the mayor and they remove the members of the city council and they elect a new mayor that owes its allegiance to the king of the realm. And so uh, here they are. They're now living in subjection to the king. But what happened to that first mayor? What happened to those first aldermen who were living in rebellion against the king? <laughs> they still live in the city. Now, they don't have any authority, not really. But they still live there. And so what do these people do? They hide in the alleys. They hide in the shadows, and whenever they see someone living in this, one of the citizens of the city, they try to bring them aside and get them to rebel against the king again. They don't have any power, but they do have influence over that city. And so what do we have to do with the mayor and the city council that were living in rebellion against the king? I mean, this might seem extreme, but folks, we've got to find them and we've got to kill them. <laughs> I, you understand I'm speaking in a metaphor, right? I'm talking about your heart. That, this is our flesh. It's got no authority. It, we, we're submitted to the king because of the work of the spirit in our hearts. But yeah, those guys still run around and they try to pull us back into our old way of thinking. That's the flesh. The spirit's in charge, the believer's heart, the believer's heart but that flesh is lurking. It's skulking in the dark. It's whispering its lies into the mind. It's casting doubt on the goodness and the authority of God. It's constantly pulling us back. This, friends, this is why the Christian life is so difficult. Why is this so hard? It's because I've got a battle going on inside of me. Yes, it's so simple. When, when Paul says, you've been free, you've been set free, now you can love everybody. And, and by the way, when you do that, you fulfill the law. You fulfilled all of God's moral excellence in your life. 
but it's not easy to do. It's hard to do because I've got this battle going on inside me. I can't do what I want to do. Either I'm going to do what the Spirit wants me to do, or I'm going to do what the flesh wants me to do. But either way, there is a part of me to which I am saying no. So friends, here's what that means. Do not ever, ever let anyone lead you to believe that following Jesus, if you're doing it right, is going to be easy. Don't ever let anyone tell you that. It's not going to be automatic. You won't be able to be passive about it. Uh, I used to read a verse like verse 16. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And think that Paul was advocating some sort of mystical, like, let go and let God, and then just watch everything fall into place, and you won't have a struggle anymore. You'll be able to obey and love others and do what God calls you to do, and it's just going to be really easy. (laughs) No. I I went to youth camp one year after my junior year of high school, and it was one of those camps. You've been, some of you, to, to these camps. Uh, It was one of those camps where the preacher just went after everything, every possible thing. Drugs, sex, alcohol, rock and roll, bitterness toward mom and dad, everything. Like anything you could mention that a teenager might struggle with, he went after it. And I searched my heart. And and there were, it was a season in my life when I was trying to be sensitive to the Spirit. And the Lord had already been working my heart. And I searched my heart. And there were a few things I confessed to the Lord. But at the end of the week, he preached one last sermon from the Old Testament where the prophet Elisha, uh, you know that story where the prophet Elisha, he's called into ministry. And in order to show his extreme devotion to the Lord and not turn back, what does he do? He takes the oxen that he'd been using to plow the field with and he kills them. And then he takes the plow that he was using and he smashes it. And burns it up so that he can't go back because he's that committed and totally devoted to the Lord. And uh, he preached from this text, and I, I even remember the title of the sermon, sermon because he kept saying it in such a weird way throughout the sermon. He would say, it's plow burning time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like he was Randy Savage or something. And I got the message. You can't follow Jesus but then keep all your old sins and temptations and kind of harbor them. You've got to lay them all on the altar. And so at the end of the sermon, we, we, uh, he challenged us. He said, if you can honestly say that you are holding nothing back, then what I want you to do is stand up from your seat, and I want you to walk to the back of the room, and there is a fire burning in the fireplace, and I want you to take a stick that represents your flesh, and I want you to throw that stick on the fire. And I did that. I felt amazing. I felt that I had finally arrived, finally at that place where I could just serve God, where all the things that I had been holding back from him were out of the way, and now I could just do what God wanted me to do, and I was free, and it wasn't going to be a struggle anymore. And the next day, we got up early, and we packed our suitcases on the bus, and we headed home. And as the miles dragged on, and my friends and I started to return to the you know, relational patterns that we had already developed in the years leading up to that week of camp. I noticed that the euphoria had worn off a little. I thought, that's kind of weird. That evening I got home and I walked into the house and my brother and sisters were the same people that they were before I had left. (laughs) My mom told me to clean my room. Like I had not been just at the top of Mount Zion, you know? And, you know, I don't remember how I responded, but after maybe a day, I began to feel very down in the dumps. Because once again, I began to struggle. And it would be years before someone helped me to understand that those mountaintop experiences are great. But God, he walks us through the Christian life, and sometimes that, that life takes us through the valley And it's going to be a struggle. Don't let anybody else tell you any different. You are not crazy if you are struggling to follow Jesus. Because what you're doing is you're saying no to those squatters in your heart, the flesh. To say no to anger, to say no to sexual immorality. It's going to be a fight. It's going to be like a boxing match. 
Walk in the Spirit. Some of you read that and you think, okay, walk in the Spirit. Got my pen, got my paper. Tell me the steps for how I do that. You legalist. (laughs) Maybe you think a little different. Maybe you read that phrase, walk in the Spirit, and you think that that's supposed to be some sort of mystical, nirvana-like experience where you float around with a sort of beatific expression on your face and quote scripture to everybody and speak in Elizabethan English, you know? And, And folks, it's neither. It's not a matter of following rules. It's not a matter of mystical mystery. It's a matter of maintaining a relationship with a person. Walk in the Spirit means walk with the Spirit. The Spirit... Spend time in relationship with him. Sometimes we think of the spirit as an impersonal force. He's not. He's a person who resides in us and is with us. He applies the word of God. He prays for us. He shows the beauty and the goodness and the glory of Christ. Spend time with him. He'll remind you of your place in the father's family. It's a relational matter, folks. Okay, what does freedom look like? How do I live free? It looks like loving service. What about the law? Actually, to love is to fulfill the law. But why is this so hard? It's because you have got a battle going on inside of you, and you need to walk in the Spirit. Well, Paul answers one last question here in Galatians 5. Uh, he expands on the practical difference between life and obedience to the flesh and life and fellowship with the Spirit in verses 19 and following. And, and I know I, I left only just a short time for this really important section, but... Uh, Here's why I don't want to save this until next week. It's because we read verses 19 and following, which is going to list out a bunch of things that are bad and a bunch of things that are good. And we read these verses and we think, okay, that's my list. Oh, yeah, just avoid this stuff and do these things, and I am good. Now I know how to walk with Jesus. I can just follow the list. But folks, that's not the point of why Paul gives us these things. Uh, What he's doing is he's giving us a, a sort of a diagnostic. He's giving us a way to know whether we or somebody else is really walking in fellowship with the Spirit or whether we're living in hypocrisy. It's not a list of things to do. It's a diagnostic tool. If you're seeing these things in your life, it means these things that are listed out that Paul says are the works of the flesh. If you're seeing those things in your life, it means you are following the dictates of the flesh. That's what it means. It's meant to to lead you to go back. You didn't read the first few chapters of Galatians well enough yet, and you got to go back to the beginning. Don't try to fake it. You might might as well go to a fruit stand, buy a bag of peaches, and tape the peaches to your mesquite tree in your backyard. That's what we're trying to do so often. You have to be a new kind of tree, and you have to be planted in healthy soil, and you have to get the water and the sunlight on that tree in order to produce the the fruit that God desires to see in us. The The only way to get peaches is to have a peach tree. Like, if you're getting thorns instead, then you've got the wrong kind of tree. If you're getting the works of the flesh, if your habits of life look like this, sexual sin, life-dominating envy, anger, bitterness, it's because you're a fleshly person and you're living as someone who is not a believer. That's why Paul says in verse 21, people who do that kind of thing will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying, if that's the way your life is, if that's what your life is all about, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God because you haven't been born again. Sure, it's true. In our world, there are plenty who say they love Jesus and then they flaunt their so-called freedom to pursue an immoral lifestyle. But Paul is saying, I've told you before and I'm telling you again, you have got to get this in your mind. Don't be deceived. If you live that way, it is showing something that is true about you. And here's what it is. You're not a Christian. So, teenager, I I don't care what that guy or girl says about how much they love the Lord. If their life is habitually and obviously displaying the works of the flesh, listed out in verses 19 and following, stop convincing yourself that they're just misunderstood, tortured souls, that they just have some wrinkles in the fabric of their mental health. No. 
the works of the flesh, Paul says, are obvious. If that girl that you're dating is consumed with envy, if that guy that you're dating is prone to fits of rage, then just pull away. You don't have to be mean, but tap the brakes or do yourself a favor. Ask people that you trust who aren't caught up in the romantic feelings, what do you see in this guy? What do you see in this girl? Is it the works of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit? Because if you're living in fellowship with the Spirit, it's going to look different. It's going to change you. Uh, Dr. Tim Keller, former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, in his excellent commentary on Galatians, makes four observations about the fruit of the Spirit based not only on the verses that describe them, but on their place in the context of the entire book. And I, I know I don't have a lot of time left, but I'm just going to list these out because they are so good, and they've helped me so immensely. He says, notice that four things about the fruit of the Spirit. They are gradual. They are inevitable. They are internal. They are symmetrical. Here's what I mean. We don't get them all at once. They grow gradually like a tree. They're gradual. It takes time for our justification to sink down deep into our hearts and produce these fruits. They are gradual. They're inevitable. Now, they're not automatic. They're not passive. But in the heart of somebody who's really been changed by the gospel, they do come about. They're inevitable. Uh, they're, they're internal. In other words, it's not... The fruit of the Spirit, they're not about wearing cross jewelry or, or like virtue signaling or sharing a verse or two on Instagram. Anybody can do that. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. Uh, but a real Christian who's walking really with the Spirit, who is going to exhibit these characteristics because they flow from the heart. They're internal. And they're symmetrical. You get all the fruit together. <laughs> Like, if you're seeing love, but you're not seeing the other fruit, then maybe that love isn't real love, is what I'm saying. Because they all kind of go together. He says the fruit of the Spirit is all these things. Real goodness is loving and kind. Real love is joyful and gentle and patient. All these things grow up together in the heart that's really being changed by the Spirit. Every single one of these characteristics in verses 22 and 23 is sort of like a facet of a of a beautiful gem, right? You turn that gem, and you might see one facet now and, and then turn it another way, and now you're looking at a different facet, but it's all part of one beautiful jewel. They're all there. And here's what's wonderful. A person who is really walking in the Spirit like this, which, by the way, this idea of walking in the Spirit, that's the whole reason why we exist, to have fellowship with God, doesn't need a bunch of rules. He doesn't need a law in the normal sense of, of the word. What does Paul say? Against such things, there is no law. In other words, when we really grasp that we are justified, that our verdict has been announced in advance, not guilty. Not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of the wonderful work of Christ. And when we are walking in fellowship with God's Spirit, and He's opening up the truth of the Word to us, and He's reminding us of the beauty of Christ, and He's reminding us that we're the children of God, and we're crying out, Abba, Father, and He's praying for us with utterances that are too deep for words, then that is going to flow into everyday life, and it's going to look like this fruit. By the way, if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me just point out that whatever goodness that you see in this church, anything that you see that's good here, in our church or in the individual people who worship here, it's not a result of personality traits. It's not a result of an upbringing. It's not a result of education. It's not because of a healthy environment. If you see any goodness, if you see any true kindness, any patience, any real love, any joy, peace or generosity or gentleness, if you see any of that, it's because these people know that Christ has brought them into a new family by sacrificing himself on their behalf. It's because there was a time when the Spirit of God himself convicted them that they were sinners and deserving of God's judgment, and yet God loved the world and pursued them and sent his only son to die on th in their place. 
and offered himself as a gift without payment or condition. And they opened up their hand and they said, there's nothing here, I can't pay. But I receive. That's why, if you see anything good at all, that's why. And I would urge you to receive that gift as well. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Find confidence for the future in the work of Jesus Christ. And you'll find that as you walk in fellowship with him, as you live out that faith, and as you internalize that hope, it's going to free you up to walk in love by the power of the Spirit. Would you pray with me now? Father, thank you so much for this gospel truth that In Christ, it's like you've made us into new trees. Trees that can begin to bear good fruit. So, Father, I I pray for any who are disheartened and discouraged in this time of growth, this time of struggle, that the winds and the rains and the sun beat down on us and threaten to stunt our growth in you. And yet we are nourished in the soil of your word. I pray that you would comfort and and encourage these brothers and sisters to continue to fight the fight. And Lord, if there are any here today who are recognizing when they look at their life, hey, I see these works of the flesh in my life. I'm I'm concerned. I, I pray, Father, that you would Just reveal to them in their heart that salvation is offered as a free gift to any who believe. And I pray that you would give them that faith and that you would do it today. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.